This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, March 5th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. The stakes are high for restoring global supply chains disrupted by the pandemic, but the protectionist policies of the last administration didn't make that easy. And the current administration appears to be in no rush to make changes to free up the movement of critical goods across the globe. Cato's Scott Linsicum warns Congress that their own efforts to direct the production and flow of goods should be informed by the knowledge that they know precious little about the supply chains that they imagine they can design. When we try to evaluate the Trump years with regard to trade, specifically with respect to supply chains, which are put together and broken uh, inside and outside of administrations, and uh, when they're broken, putting them back together may or may not be a a simple process. Uh, But is there any way to measure that? That is, can we measure any damage that was done by the Trump administration with respect to supply chains? Yes, um, there are, in fact, numerous now uh, academic analyses of how Trump's tariffs in particular have uh, caused major problems in other sectors, um, in other manufacturing sectors. Um, The essentially... What these studies have uniformly found is that the tariffs, um, while they may have, while they did increase steel prices, um, they uh, caused pretty significant pain to the downstream industries using those. And these are all, again, in the same supply chains because, you know, steel being an upstream input goes and feeds into the production of other stuff. And so, um, yeah, the, the, the general conclusion from those studies, like I said, is, is uh, significant pain for very little gain, because that's the other thing these have found is that um, while prices spiked initially, um, well, when prices go up, um, you, you end up having less domestic demand for those products. And so demand went down. And uh, the steel industry ended up basically in the same place it was before, if not even worse. Um, You know, even there were layoffs in in late 2019, right before the pandemic hit. Right before or right after he was sworn in as president, Joe Biden said, we're going to do this comprehensive review of our supply chains uh, regarding uh, essential medical uh, devices and, and products. And that, of course, set off my spidey senses because uh, usually that doesn't mean good things. But coming out of the Trump administration, who knows? Uh, So has anything functional been done to open up supply chains or make them more restricted? Yeah, so far, it's been uh, essentially an extension of the Trump years. We haven't really seen any radical moves, um, good or bad. Um, but instead, we've seen uh, them maintain all of, of the tariffs. Um, they've done a little bit on Buy American policies, and then they've instituted this review. What's odd about the Biden review is that the CARES Act already uh, it had initiated a significant review uh, by the National Academy of Sciences to uh, of of critical supply chains uh, for essential medical goods and a few other things. And you know Biden's executive order expands that to a few other things, uh, semiconductors being the big one. There's now this global chip shortage going on uh, due to the pandemic. Um, and uh, 
rare earth materials as well. Again, these are very items in the news. Um, and so, so there is a bit of an expansion, but it's uh, in the medical goods side, it's really all, all part of the same stuff that, that was already underway. Um, but we've seen, unfortunately, no real attempts to liberalize uh, any of the restrictions that, that Trump has put in place that are, that are messing with uh, our supply chains. Now, when I hear uh, either a politician or someone out and about in the wild saying, we shouldn't politicize this, we shouldn't politicize this important issue, uh, usually my sense is that's because someone else has already politicized it and uh, made it a political uh, chip. So to what extent has the Biden administration, by maintaining this, uh, sought political advantage in doing so? Right. Well, I mean, they certainly the the politics are difficult for them because on the one hand, they don't want to be seen as endorsing Trump policies. But on the other hand, you know, in typical fashion, once these policies are put in place, they develop constituencies that uh, depend on them. And in this case, that's going to be manufacturing unions, steel workers, so forth. Um, and thus, it is difficult for them to backtrack because not only, uh, even though they could see some political benefit from undoing Trump policies, well, now they have core supporters in, in the unions in particular that want these things to maintain, be maintained. And so they're in a bit of a tough spot. Uh, really, uh, the what they're doing is, I think, potentially clever in that they're saying they're not going to do anything until they complete a full review of the tariffs and their effects. And Janet Yellen, the other day, Treasury Secretary Yellen, was asked if she thinks that, for example, the China tariffs have worked. And she paused quite comically and said that it's all under review. So they still have given themselves a potential out once the dust settles a bit. But they're going to find it very hard, which that's, of course, one of the reasons why you don't want these types of uh, these types of restrictions put in place, because they, they are very difficult to remove um, once, once they're there. It's classic kind of case of concentrated benefits and diffuse costs. Um, the costs, of course, being borne by other manufacturers and, and American consumers uh, who, quite frankly, aren't paying much attention to that at all. So that's difficult. The the other thing that's making that's making Biden's life quite miserable right now is that um, manufacturers are really struggling to meet domestic demand for durable goods um, because we are of, we are all trapped in our homes or have been at least. Um, the uh, we are spending a lot more of our budgets on durable goods, whether it's lumber or uh, appliances or cars even. Um, now that has spiked demand for domestic manufacturers. Um, again, contrary to popular belief, we do still make a lot of stuff here, even stuff that people that or everyday consumers buy. Um, and so manufacturers are running red hot. The problem is that they can't get the steel they need to keep producing and aluminum as well, which of course again are subject to these these tariffs that are they're blocking imports, and that that's putting additional pressure on Biden because he has promised this grand manufacturing recovery, and the manufacturing recovery is right off in the distance. But to get to it, he's going to have to run uh, right into the steelworkers union, 
and other uh, domestic interests, steelmakers in core swing states like Pennsylvania, um, and he's going to have to make somebody mad. And and so thus far, there's not really a, a great solution. Um, I should add that there's also a, a, a geopolitical angle to this. You know, Biden has promised to repair our alliances with Japan and Europe and others, and these tariffs are a very big sticking point. And uh, again, however, uh, to to move on them, he's going to have to tick somebody off and again, some pretty politically powerful people. So um, he's in a a bit of a mess uh, right now. And I'm I'm hopeful that they'll be able to do something after this review is finished. But I got to say, listening to the rhetoric recently, I'm I'm not very um, optimistic. It really does appear that they're going to let these things stick around for a while. When you have a sort of a radical shakeup of supply chains, of uh, the ability of American manufacturers to produce things, a lot of this driven by uh, a radical uh, reshaping of the economy in very short form uh, when the pandemic hit, are politicians really that arrogant? And I know where you're going to go with your answer here yeah. as to think that they know which supply chains are going to be uh, disrupted and how nimble and how robust <laughs> yeah. our uh, uh, responses of the great Americans who make things and buy things uh, will be. Right. It is frustrating because, yes, you know, my answer is going to be pretty obvious that they they do think they can control uh, and figure these things out, um, which is, of course, ridiculous. Uh, it's ridiculous first, just given the complexity of these supply chains, uh, even for rather rudimentary products like surgical masks. Um, you're still talking about a pretty complex supply chain in terms of you know getting the petrochemicals you need and making these kind of uh, synthetic materials to make the mask and then, of course, assembly and the rest. Um, And then don't even get started into the pharmaceuticals area, which is extremely, extremely complex and subject to all sorts of regulation as well, um, health regulations and the rest. Um, But no, they they think they can do this. um, And yet the other fatal conceit is that they don't seem to understand that the moment the pandemic really took off, American and multinational manufacturers were already working to adjust their supply chains to make things work. And the way I've described it is that our political class and a lot of pundits are stuck in an April 2020 mindset, despite the fact that uh, companies and investors have done pretty radical things in a very short amount of time. Um, And we see this across sectors in the medical goods space in particular. You know, the pandemic was a a extreme shock to both supply and demand. Um, All of a sudden, uh, demand, for example, for N95 masks increased tenfold out of nowhere. You know, most N95s used to actually be used for construction you know, painters and stuff would would use these. Um, and, and health sector was actually a pretty small part of the N95 uh, consumer base. And now, of course, everybody wants N95s. Um, the uh, N95 producers, we actually have substantial production here in the United States, have said that essentially demand is infinite for these products. Um, and those types of radical changes, and then, of course, you know, when you have a a, a, a a pandemic when you have coronavirus hits a country it stops manufacturing for a little bit it gums up the shipping channels all of that type of stuff right so all of this happened and of course the first thing that 
logistics experts, very sophisticated folks and very sophisticated companies do, is they start trying to rework their supply chains, not only to get products to American consumers uh, in 2020, but to ensure that these types of things don't happen again. And so, you know, maybe they realized that they were a bit too reliant on China, for example, for certain production. Well, they start shifting out of China. Um, maybe they realize they need to have larger domestic inventories here in the United States. Well, they, they expand storage and inventory capacity in the United States. Maybe uh, other investors jump into the market, realizing there's tons of demand. And we, of course, saw this with respect to hand sanitizer um, and face masks. You know, Etsy, uh, for example, the online retailer, uh, had sales of face masks go absolutely crazy last year, selling millions and millions of face masks as people jumped into that market to make a buck. And all our po politicians are still acting very much like uh, none of this has happened and that, you know, we're still tossing out money under the Defense Production Act um, or demanding more radical changes to trade and investment policy based on a frozen moment in time that that's just not there anymore. And quite frankly, it's a really been a testament to the flexibility of the United States manufacturing sector. You know, these are industries that that never made ventilators, for example, that started making ventilators. Um, and of course, textile mills making making masks and the rest. Um, and but also for our supply chains to adapt our global supply chains. And uh, it's really been miraculous. You know, the United States International Trade Commission uh, just in December did this huge study of of core medical goods and medical goods supply chains. And they said, yeah, you know, there were these shortages in April. Um, there were some pretty rough spots uh, thereafter. But amazingly, the supply chains have adapted pretty well. And outside of rubber gloves, which have pretty significant constraints on natural rubber and uh, the raw material, the artificial uh, rubber um, Outside of rubber gloves, uh, there was really no major concerns going into 2021. And I think we consumers, I think we can see this. You know, you go onto Amazon now, you can get surgical masks, you can get N95s if you want them. Um, sure, there are going to be bottlenecks, particularly for large-scale purchases at hospitals and so forth. But but the supply chains have, have done a pretty good job uh, adapting. Years ago, I had this conversation uh, with various people, Dan Griswold, our former colleague at the Cato Institute, and uh, Don Boudreau. Uh, and it's it would be comical if the stakes were not so high that markets do adapt to uh, adverse circumstances, uh, and yet we know that there are limits to that. Uh, so right. what the, the Biden administration may not be wrong as a matter of pure politics to be doing what they're doing, but certainly getting products in the hands of people who can use them to alleviate the costs and um, the damage being right. done continuously by this pandemic, uh, that seems like a pretty clear case uh, before us. It, it is. And, you know, the one of the most frustrating things about being a, a free marketer and, and being knee deep in these supply chains is listening to people point out um, empty shelves in April as proof that the free market has failed, that capitalism has failed. Right. And uh, again, you know, this was a 
truly insane and hopefully uh, once in a lifetime shock to the entire global economy, almost all at once, um, and causing demand to do absolutely haywire, crazy things. Um, and the fact is that our shelves, the reality, yes, there were shortages, there were problems, but what the the critics don't ever do then is then look at what happened in May and in July and now and how quickly, how amazingly quickly uh, people adapted, um, both producers uh, and retailers and even consumers. We adjusted our consuming our consumption habits to make do with uh, uh, for with replacements for what were considered you know, our standard, say Clorox wipes or whatever. Um, and all of that is is due to the flexibility and the dynamism of the free market. Um, it would have been impossible for anyone or any group of people to to plan it out better. And in fact, you know, we tried to plan things out. Uh, the example I use in, in my new paper is ventilators again, right? So in March and April, President Trump, uh, the thought, the, the, the Trump administration thought that we were going to need a ton of ventilators. So they used the Defense Production Act to essentially force American companies, um, automakers, GE and others to make ventilators. And there were a lot of stories about how we had a shortage of ventilator parts and this proved our manufacturing capacity was you know, a problem and all this type of stuff. Well, fast forward three months later and the medical professionals realized that we didn't need so many ventilators. And uh, yet the, the De Defense Production Act uh, mandates continue. Now we have an, a, a glut of ventilators. Um, our, our stockpiles are overflowing with ventilators. We are now giving them away to poor countries that don't even want these ventilators. Um, and that is really a classic example, I think, of how that, that momentary stuck-in-time mindset that implements policy that becomes almost not just not just useless, but counterproductive in terms of uh, monopolizing resources that could have been put to better and put more productive uses, um, because it just simply can't. It's not nimble enough, um, and and certainly they just can't predict where the supplies and resources we're actually going to need. The development of vaccines, and you and I have discussed this uh, previously, was a a real all hands on deck kind of moment. Uh, where you had global supply chains uh, functioning in order to to do the research, to move the material from one place to another, to ramp up production capacity uh, in all these plants. And uh, for the big companies that are making them, they're also hoping to make a pretty solid buck in the process. Right. right. And, you know, I, th I think it's um, the 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 vaccines really are, I think, an, just a fantastic real world example of the difference between um, state directed industrial policy and um, the kind of free market, open market, collaborative approach um, that that actually does produce pretty significant benefits. And and I, I say that because, you know, if you look particularly at the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine, um, here is a vaccine that, as we've discussed before, was uh, the product of years of global collaboration. BioNTech was a company that, you know, was 
founded by immigrants, uh, the product of global capital markets. Uh, they they um, and then partnered with a large multinational in Pfizer that uh, funded the entire uh, R and D process itself, two billion dollars at its own risk, and the only significant government involvement in the production of the vaccines was an advanced purchase contract, essentially the United States government saying, we'll buy whatever you produce, we'll buy you know, 200 million doses um, if it, you can get through FDA approval. Um, now, Pfizer, though, used existing manufacturing capacity, you know, so much for deindustrialization. Pfizer used its own uh, production capacity. It also used imported inputs. It also had foreign production uh, manufacturing capacity as well. Um, and all of this was actually in place pre-pandemic. No one was sitting around um, planning to have a massive vaccine uh, production in place. Instead, um, Pfizer, serving uh, its markets and serving uh, its customers, had this type of capacity in place. It also had the logistics systems in place. And these logistics systems, very complex, you know, to get inputs to Pfizer, to get vaccines out the door. Um, all of this had, had evolved over decades, not even not weeks or months. Um, and none of this, again, was, was going to be planned out. Um, and had we had to actually work from scratch to do these things, um, it would have been essentially impossible. You know, we, we maybe could have had an all-American vaccine, you know, leaving, I mean, I don't think we could have, the immigrants, maybe not, but we, we could have had an American-made vaccine, but it would have taken a lot longer. Um, and of course, uh, we would have lost a lot of lives and time in the process. And so it really is, I think, a just fantastic example of how all of these things we take for granted every day, you know, getting our cheap T-shirts to our doorstep uh, via Amazon um, or the uh, these production networks that are, are organically uh, that arise organically over time uh, based on commercial necessity. Um, all of these things are then put into uh, use for for something greater than that in the, in the vaccines. Um, and it, it would not have been uh, possible without, um, without those types of interactions, uh, regardless of how much government money we threw at it. Scott Linsicum is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. And now a thank you to a Cato podcast sponsor, Robert Wilson. Thank you for your continued support of the Cato Institute and the Cato Daily Podcast. That support enables our work advancing individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Robert, again, thank you. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.